Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Zach to the Future. I'm your co-host, Dashiell Driscoll. Joined today with the man who's going to turn everything around at Bayside, Mark Paul Gosler. Hello, Mark Paul. Hello, Dashiell. How are you today on this uh, election episode? Let's skip all the niceties. Let's okay. go straight to the... Okay. We have a right. lot okay. to get to. This is an important episode. It's called The Election. Right. This is a big episode. I have lots of notes. Um, I, I, I watched this and, and uh, did my homework. So Okay, yeah. Pleasant, pleasantries in the trash can. Let's just dive on into the summary <laughs> in case you didn't watch it. Uh, it's the student president election. Jesse's running unopposed until Zach hears the president gets a free trip to Washington, D.C. Jesse's campaign is good but boring. Zach offers empty promises and fear-mongering. Slater learns Zach's only in it for a free trip. So he gets Belding to say the trip is canceled just as Zach pulls ahead in the polls. Jesse becomes a vapid, fun-loving candidate to defeat Zach, while Zach attempts to sabotage his own campaign. Kelly's single vote wins Zach the election. Belding reveals the trip's still happening, but Zach resigns to give Jesse the presidency. The end. And we are in, we're in Act 1. Just as easy as that. And now, uh, last episode, we we sort of described as a bottle episode. It feels like this one's back on track. We have lots of background, lots of things happening, a um, lot of movement yeah. to, to begin this episode. Skateboarder, right off the top. Skateboarder, right off the top. I'm watching it on Peacock as well as Hulu. And on Peacock, there was a different theme song, again, sung by Michael Damien. Uh, we, we had that discussion in the previous episode. So if you missed it, go listen to episode 12. Oh, no, episode 11 right? Uh, with Bennett Tramer. I caught that new alternate or old alternate theme song. It is, uh, it's rough. You, you really know why they went with the one they did. <laughs> it's, it's worse. So this episode, be, I'm, I'm going off of the way I look and my hair. I think it falls somewhere between the Lisa card, the gift, fatal distraction, et cetera. We've, we've talked about that we shot these uh, and, and then just played them in random order. There was no logic to that. Peter Engel didn't think it mattered um, to, to, to basically air them. They thought it mattered for other, like they were, there was probably a logic, just not one rooted in like narrative and, and hair progression. Yeah. So this, this, my hair in this one, I'm, I'm happy with my yeah. hair in this episode. I think, uh, uh, I, I recently had a dye job because it, my whole head is blonde, which is nice. 
Um, I, I am, I am a little, uh, dissatisfied with, um, some of my ticks that I do in this episode. Mm. Uh, notably I, I nod a lot when I'm, when I'm talking to the camera. Um, I nod a lot and I do these double eye winks and that's a complete fail. I think I'm trying to wink with one eye, but they come off as a double eye wink, which is a blink traditionally, which is a blink. Thank you, Dashiell. Yeah. But I will point those out as we progress through this episode, but cringeworthy for me. I, I had a really hard time watching myself in this episode, speaking to the camera because I didn't feel comfortable. Hmm. Uh, well, I, I didn't feel comfortable me watching it, but I also don't think my character uh, was comfortable doing it at that time because again, this was early on in, in the show. Right. You were, uh, you were still finding your footing as Zach Morris. Yes, I was. And so with that, let's uh, start the episode. Yeah. We're, uh, we're in the halls of Bayside and you know, you get the, the election is happening uh, and this scene really quickly sets up like some pretty big Jesse Spano stuff of, of you know, she has a a mother who was a, a activist in the 60s and she's running for office and, you know, like very principled, uh, you know, Jesse stuff that becomes her her character. And also principles of Zach <laughs> in the same right. <laughs> we find out that she's running. She wants to make a difference. And Zach is just talking about the the girls he he chases down. Zach has a Roseanne Barr joke. Mm, yeah. Basically says uh, Roseanne Barr is something about skipping a meal. Right. Uh, I don't think that would fly nowadays. That that was a '90s type of joke. No, I mean it wouldn't. It you wouldn't pick on her for that certainly uh just like the big the big old woman joke um but also it would be a, if it was about Roseanne it would just be a different Roseanne joke at this point i think our humor about Roseanne has evolved uh as well yeah i mean if we talk about Roseanne we talk about her politics now which right. c- goes in line with this particular episode yeah i wonder i wonder who Roseanne would be b- voting for if if she was a student at Bayside and all this probably like an independent vote <laughs> and we get our first sighting of Mr. Dewey yes we do Mr. Dewey played by Patrick Thomas O'Brien. Uh, he's in four episodes of Saved by the Bell, so a recurring teacher in the halls of Bayside. Uh, he was in a ton of 90s television, um, Gilmore Girls, Home Improvement, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. It is just a massive, massive list of shows. You definitely saw him on for at least an episode or two. But Mark Paul, he was also in one 1998 film, Dead Man on Campus. He was? St- starring none other than Mark Paul Gosler. Yeah, you were in a movie with Mr. Dewey. He played a priest in Dead Men on Campus. But when you say he You're was asking, in a movie- were you in the same scene? Yes. I know. Yeah, so I I actually saw Dead Men on Campus in a movie theater. I was one of the people who was a ticket-owning person seeing that film at age- One of the few. Yeah, one of the few. Uh, few the proud, the present. I don't quite recall. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to remember if you ever shared a scene- Maybe I'll go back and do some double homework for the next Mr. Dewey episode and we can we can crack that case. But you guys were in a movie together. No need to do that kind of homework. I'm sure you'll get- <laughs> Oh, you don't want me to watch Dead Men on Campus again? You'll get, no, you'll get the answer on Twitter. Don't worry. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. That's a good point. I can save my time um, and I don't need to rent uh, Dead Men on Campus uh, this evening. So I did a little research on on uh, Mr. Dewey. He was born in 1951, which would put him around 50, uh, 40 years old. Um, hmm. while we were filming, uh, Saved by the Bell, same age as Dennis Haskins. Uh, and I bring that up because in this particular show, there would have been 40, which is six years younger than I am right now. Way to bring the show down, Mark Paul. Your business card says I'm 28. You, you gave me one the first time we met. I was very confused. Uh, but sure. I, okay. Your, your actual age has been revealed. 
that is kind of weird how when you're a kid, like the adults feel so much older. And then as you grow older yourself, it's like, oh, they, were, they weren't that old at all. Like to think of you yourself being older than Mr. Dewey feels impossible. So we'll see Mr. Dewey again, you're saying as well? Yeah, we will. And he's actually in King of the Hill. So they, they liked him so much, they put him as a teacher in the what would have been the pilot episode. Um, so yeah, we'll see Mr. Dewey three more times. He's a, he's a very memorable teacher, kind of like Mr. Tuttle because of his cadence and you know the way he carries himself. And we also learned Belding was arrested for skinny dipping, just more of like Belding's horny history of like nude swimming illegally. That's, he's just a very sexed up character we're, we're finding out in this rewatch. You see the head nods? Did you did you catch those at the end of the scene? Yeah, you you kind of nod in and out, like you like bring like yeah, you're making my you're, point. You're with punctuating. Yeah, yeah, you're punctuating your lines. Anyway, so we get into the classroom now, and uh, Jesse's running for president, unopposed, unopposed. But yeah, Zach decides to put his hat into the running, and why? For a free trip to DC. Which, by the way, can we just like it? Not a not a good not a good reason to do this. Like just a trip to it. What do you really want to go to DC that bad with building for? Like it, it's very uh, confusing to me. From like I, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> uh, but what do I know? What do you know, Dashiell? I'm going to talk to somebody who actually does <laughs> know more about DC than you. Uh, our oh, guest, good. our guest this week is a friend of mine, uh, Reed Dickens. And uh, Reed and I have been friends for what six years now, Reed. Actually, it was 2010 we met on the plane. Oh, 2010, really? So, wow. Yeah. If I do my math, if I carry the one, that's like close to 10 years then. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, t- it, Reed, I, it's hard to give you an intro because uh, I, I think you're one of the most fascinating people I've, I've met in, in 10 years. <laughs> Excuse me, Mark Paul. I'm in that camp. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize you were in the same room as us. I didn't, I didn't realize my microphone was working. <laughs> Um, but Reed, tell them a little bit about yourself. Also, t- uh, tell them the story about how we met because it is it is a funny story. Yeah, so uh, I I was a had a very Forrest Gump uh, experience. I drove. I grew up in a small town in Louisiana and drove to Texas and volunteered in uh, Governor George W. Bush's office and ended up being a young press aide in his West Wing and had an office about you know thirty feet from the Oval Office and. Very soon after, I got promoted to be the White House Assistant Press Secretary, which is a very you know mid-level, uh, level five is what he used to jokingly call it. But uh, I, I, but but after 9/11, they shut down our chief of staff, shut down our West Wing, where it was harder to come in and out of the West Wing for the uh, the White House staff that worked across the street in the old executive building. So my job ended up being in in the president's little you know seven or eight people called the bubble. You know, so I was with the president ten or twelve hours a day and. Uh, traveled with him and uh, around the world on Air Force One and uh, ran with him and played golf with him and just had a very surreal experience. And I was one of the last people to go office on 9-11. So I, I started off my career for five years in, in the White House, um, uh, was the national television spokesman in his re-election campaign, uh, spent a few months in, uh, over in the Middle East during the beginning of the war. So it was just a, a wild experience. Moved to California in 2004 and had been a serial entrepreneur, um, the, the companies I spent the most time on, I built a baseball, major league baseball bat company called uh, Marucci Sports. I co-founded in 2010. Uh, that is when I met you uh, on the plane. I was flying back and forth to LA. Uh, we had moved, temporarily relocated to Baton Rouge where the baseball bat company was founded. And so uh, we sat down next to each other in, uh, in, in, on, the, on the plane. And uh, I, remember, I remember thinking, I, I'd had a crisis management company for four or five years and had, had 
probably 75 different celebrity, you know, clients. And so I was, I was not new to Hollywood. I had done a management group with the Jonas brothers. Like I was not new to the Hollywood scene. Um, but, but when, uh, Mark Paul, when you sat down next to me with those beautiful blue eyes, I, I was, I was like, I, I'm not sure what my opening line is going to be. Uh, well, your opening line, if I remember correctly, we didn't speak probably, and you weren't a plane talker as, as, uh, no. uh, yeah, you, 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 you waited, I think until our descent. Yeah, we were, we were almost, we were descending and I, I remember I asked you what you guys were filming in New Orleans, you were filming in New Orleans. I invited you to come to an LSU game uh, because uh, I told you that if, you know, that going to football games on the West Coast is not the same as real college football in the SEC. And uh, we chatted about LSU. Um, and I remember, I remember just um, that you came, you came back up, we chatted at the, at the luggage uh, at the bag claim and we traded numbers and um, then not long after that, I moved back to Los Angeles and we, we reconnected through Vanessa Lachey. Right. And, and I have to add one of my, one of life's regrets is not taking you up on that offer to go see an LSU game. I, I hope one day I get that offer again because I, I won't let it pass this time. Um, but yeah, we, I was working, uh, with a mutual friend, Vanessa Lachey on a, uh, short lived show for NBC called truth be told she played my my wife on that show and then i um started uh, immediately on another show called pitch where i played a major league player and i remember vanessa going you know you should call reed because reed has a lot of uh connections in in mlb and i thought oh my god that's right uh, marucci and so my character mike lawson um was a marucci sponsored uh uh client uh player and I was the only one on that show that was allowed to fly that flag because the show was sponsored by Wilson, Rawlings, Louisville Slugger, uh, things like that. But my character was allowed to bat with the Marucci bats, which you guys made custom for me, the weights that I wanted, the lengths that I wanted. I still have one actually in my office sitting right here. Uh, they're just beautiful bats that are like works of art. Well, and that was actually very representative of our reality because Marucci... Uh, Louisville Slugger and Rawlings and Wilson were the officials were official partners of Major League Baseball. We built our brand as a rogue, uh, rogue upstart, and I got forty Major League players to invest in the company. And so the uh, the 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 guy who was the deputy commissioner, now the commissioner, Rob Manfred, called me. They called me one time and said, you know, you can't use more than two or three players in your advertisement. That's against Major League Baseball Players Union policy. And I said, well, then you should sue your players. They're owners in the company and they hung up on me and never called back. But, <laughs> so we built our brand making these really, uh, making these really, uh, we made about 300 videos making fun of Louisville Slugger and Rawlings and Wilson. It didn't go over well. I was not popular in the baseball industry. Um, but what's, what's interesting is that all the players who used our products, a lot of times they would be sponsored by Louisville Slugger or Wilson or Rawlings, but they were investors in our company. So your character you know, being a, a, a star and a super, a, a, the catcher, the starting catcher, that was actually pretty reflective of our reality in, in the real major league relationship. So that's all fascinating, Reed. But again, you're here not only because of your political background and because you're business savvy, but, but also because something about you being a super fan, like how, how was it sitting next to someone on a plane that you grew up uh, emulated. You got, you got to give us some backstory. Idolizing. Yeah, there's no question. Listen, like I said, I had had, you know, I spent five years on Air Force One and had, had dozens of A-list celebrity clients and none, none of them ever gave me the butterflies. <laughs> but I actually thought I, I realized I was having a life moment because I, I, so when I was in middle school, I, 
would use uh, lemon juice to bleach my hair and, and did my hair like Zach Morris. I named my dog Zach Morris. Um, I actually have more than a few people signed my yearbooks to me as Zach. Um, I had a teacher one time, this talking about things that wouldn't fly in today's world, like the Roseanne Bar comment. I had a teacher throw an eraser at me and it shattered on the wall. I ducked and it shattered on the wall behind me. And he said, Mr. Dickens, I tell the jokes in this class. This is not saved by the bell. And then, uh, and then another, my geometry teacher, one time I turned my paperwork in and she said, she said, Hey, Zach Morris, do you think you're really going to charm your way through life? Is that your plan? And I said, yes, ma'am, absolutely. And so I was kind of known as, you know, that Zach Morris, that was my, that was my persona and I, I live for it. So when I sat down next to Mark Paul, I, I, uh, I was like, well, I, I kind of just, I got to get some work done and then I got to figure out how to talk to him without sounding like the psycho super fan. It sounds like you played it correctly in waiting. Like waiting until the descent, definitely. And even waiting until baggage claim to make like a formal number. It's like you, you yeah. took the pressure because when you're on an airplane, you are trapped to the person sitting next to you. So like, yeah, that was, that was a thoughtful way to handle it. It's just, it's, 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 it's just like dating. Yeah. You, you know, you gotta be careful not to be too aggressive. And, and the, and the truth is I was going through a major uh, shareholder battle and a lawsuit. And I had a lot going on. So the truth is I had a lot of work to get done. And uh, I didn't want to blow it too yeah. soon, you know. And so uh, th- I remember one thing I was very careful about is I, I said, my first thing I said to you, Mark Paul, was that I mentioned something about shoot your shooting schedule in New Orleans just to show that I actually was not just that I actually understood how it, your life worked. I wasn't just a crazy fan, even though I was. You weren't like, how's Kelly? <laughs> I, I think the, the better question that he could ask me here is, where's Kelly? I get a lot of that. Like, where's Screech? As if... I hmm. travel or they are part of my life at all times. Not because yeah, how's Kelly. I could play that. I could, I could say, you know what? She's doing great. She's, you know, she, her, her, she's living with her husband. She has two kids. Um, you know, she's on a new show here and there, but where's Kelly? Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't know. Or where's Screech? I, I don't know. I, at that point, yeah. it's a conversation killer. Did you remember uh, watching this episode in your youth? Yeah, I actually, and so, so number one, I did because I was actually intrigued by politics in, at the time and I actually ran for school president. So I actually did remember this episode, but also I think I told you this, Mark Paul, a few years ago, my kids came into my bedroom on Saturday morning because they had always asked my wife if they, if they found a new show, they had always asked permission for my wife and they were explaining this show with this cool kid and this wrestler and this nerd and they, and I realized they were talking about Saved by the Bell. They truly think they discovered Saved by the Bell. And so I actually saw the election episode with them a few months ago. Well, that's interesting because when Jesse mentions the 60s, like her mom was a part of the 60s, right now, Saved by the Bell is as long ago as the 60s were when Saved by the Bell was on. That's interesting. Like that's the level of generation gap we're talking about. Yeah, my kids love the show. So yeah, I have the, the, the episode had a lot of funny moments in it. Um, I think it was almost like a precursor to today's politics, right? Where Zach Morris is really was a lot savvier. You have one candidate, this happens often, right? With Bush, Gore, Bush, Kerry, Obama. The, you, you, you have one candidate that's way more substantive and one candidate who's way savvier, uh, way more savvy of a politician, right? And actually knows the audience and, and uh, the, the whole like, do you want to live a life without pizza or hot dogs, right? Like that's actually knowing your audience. Yeah, no, we're, we're in the max for their, um, their various campaign speeches uh, after Zach is running. And it does, like Jesse's speech is like good, but boring. And Zach like truly whips up the crowd into a frenzy of like, 
she's going to take your pizza basically, (laughs) which is like still, I I was going to ask you sort of, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're already kind of said it, but like, it, it seems like that is a common, a common theme in real politics. Like that is how things divide for whatever reason. Yeah. I think if you go back to Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, uh, Richard Nixon was an incredibly intellectual, he was an intellectual giant. He actually was in a policy walk, right? And John F. Kennedy was very light on policy. He was young, um, had had everything kind of given to him in life, but he was a much savvier politician, right? He knew his audience. He knew, he knew the pain points. Um, the, the truth is George Bush Sr. was a much, uh, much had much more depth policy-wise than Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was 42, but Bill Clinton was obviously a world-class politician and he felt people's pain and he understood them. So you could just, you can follow the last six decades of politics and you see this over and over. Even Mike Judge's movie, Idiocracy, captures that where the guy's like, you know, where's South Carolina in the house? And everybody's going crazy like it's a basketball game. And uh, then you then you see that it's all like written in the teleprompter. And I think I think that's the way politics has regressed to, to today. Yeah, I mean, Bill Clinton on Arsenio Hall, I feel like is a is a known moment in culture of like, ah, like the cool president playing a saxophone. Well, like, what does that have to do with his policy? Doesn't matter. Like, he's on a, no. he's on a cool show and it's, it's I watch it at night because I'm cool and like, I want my president to be cool. It's a, yeah, it's a definitely a thing. Yeah, post, post television, right? The cooler candidate has won almost every time, right? Um, so you look, at, you look at Mitt Romney in 2012, or, um, I'm sorry, 20, yeah, 2012. Uh, Mitt Romney was just a policy giant um, and, and Barack Obama was much cooler, right? I mean, you can really go election to election. Al Gore, Al Gore was a policy giant um, and, and George W. Bush was, was cooler, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's, you, can, you can say that's an indictment which maybe it is, right? Because Plato famously predicted that late stage republics devolve into a democracy. And I think Twitter and social media has accelerated this devolution from republic to democracy. And whether you think that's a good thing or not, I think you're constantly seeing that the person, uh, I used to joke 10 years ago that by the time my kids were grown, Kanye and Taylor Swift were going to run against each other as president. And I had no idea I would ever actually see Kanye on the presidential ballot. California. Yeah, you were early. You were early on that prediction. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. I, I early called. Yes. Hey, Breed, I'm gonna. Th- I'm gonna be devil's advocate here. You said th- that the popular person wins, but th- George W. W. did not win the popular vote, as well as um, our current president Trump did not win the popular vote. No, I said the cooler person. Yeah, the cooler person usually wins, but they didn't. But they didn't win the popular vote. They won the electoral. Wouldn't that kind of like be against what you were saying? No, because I, I, so when you think about the, the reason why they created, uh, the founding fathers created a republic um, was to avoid uh, the emotional mob, like the masses, right? So to win the popular vote, all you have to do is really win seven cities or six cities. Um, and that's not representative of the 50 states in the union. Um, and so, yeah, if you just wanted to win the popular vote, you would just go to New York, LA, Chicago, Dallas, you'd just go to a few cities. And uh, that the founding fathers were very careful to make sure we were not a democracy uh, because then the emotional mob would rule and the founding fathers had never even heard of Twitter. So whether you think it's a good thing or not, this system was actually set up not just so that you could win by a technicality with the electoral map. It was actually intentionally, des- it's a, you know, in Silicon Valley, they say it's a feature, not a bug. It, w- it was actually intentionally designed to protect us from, from majority. rule. And now, you know, Dashiell, I know you were, you were thinking. Now I know. No, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not. I'm not taking a position of whether that's good or bad, but that was the intent. No, I mean it is interesting because it. The more the more we're talking about this, it feels like America is just one big old high school, and you just have to like go around to the right tables and like be popular to the right groups for the right reasons. I mean, it. They. It's. It's neat. They. They couched it. Um, you know, as a school election, but there's 
some pretty clear uh, parables here for how it applies to actual U.S. democracy. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating how um, Jesse Spano says uh, at one point uh, when Kelly says she wasn't sure who she was going to vote on, um, Jesse Spano says, but we're women. We go to the bathroom together. And, and actually, both parties think like that. Joe Biden famously said a few months ago, you're not a real black person if you don't vote on me, right? Uh, both parties think the black people are supposed to vote for Democrats. Uh, Hispanics are supposed to vote for Democrats. Um, suburban women are supposed to split evenly. Both parties have this expectation of how each demographic plays out. Uh, people over 65, historically, Republicans win by 20 points. This time, Biden's winning by 27. So that's a structural that's a structural breakdown in what usually happens in the parties. And so I thought Zach and Kelly both talking, you know, Zach says it to Slater and uh, Jesse says it to Kelly, which is, wait, we're men. Wait, we're women. You're supposed to vote for me. And that's actually how both parties think. Yeah. And of course, Max, uh, in, the, in the Max, he has aprons on to play both sides of this thing, uh, which seems like a weird place to put a couple 15-year-olds' faces, <laughs> uh, just write it, write it, crotch level. But I can't tell you that actually, I, I noticed so many nuances in this episode because I hadn't noticed before. Um, when he does that, I can't tell you how many people in the business world do that, right? Well, like people in the private equity world, the CEOs of major corporations, they'll host one candidate and chest bump and hug and talk, you know, have, have a great time. And the next week they'll host the other candidate, right? And so uh, capitalists are usually agnostic to party. And so Max uh, was doing what a, what a lot of major check writers and a lot of major executives and corporate executives in this country do. Uh, Max was kind of giving the kids a, a juvenile version of what a lot of business people actually do in this country. Yeah, I mean, he's in the business of selling burgers, right? Like he doesn't want to, <laughs> he doesn't want to alienate half of his burger eaters. Dash, well, how, do you, how do you feel about this magic trick? You mean- The hand- the wait, the magic trick of him revealing the aprons? No, no, no. With his what he when he offers Zach his hand and it falls off. Oh yeah, I mean that's you know it's he's it's look Ed, we'd love to have you on the show, and I know you were you were just trying to <laughs> trying to fill the scenes with fun, and I get it. I'm not trying to knock your magic, but it's you know maybe not the grandest illusion. That's that's the polite way to to phrase it. I can't wait to get Ed and you in a ring. He's going to make me disappear. Like, I'm like all this talking and I'm just going to stand there and vanish into thin air and you'll never find me. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but he is in the reboot and I don't think the man has aged. No, you. Are, I think you are allowed to say it because he was one of the first people to post on social media. So like all the all the writers and everything, we, we signed, you know, some pretty like don't say a thing stuff. But as soon as like Ed posts in his outfit and he's on set, it's like, oh, okay, well, cool. And fans were excited because be- people love Max. Just pointing out real quick while we're still in the max and, uh, you know, before Zach sends Screech to get brochures, as that's what you had to do to learn about a city uh, at the time in history. Um, Kelly's the undecided voter. And like Kelly in her kind of like wholesome, I I, I see the good in everyone attitude. I, I think like she really represents a real type of person who doesn't know which lever to pull. Um, and it's kind of nice, again, to like in this grand metaphor for voting, they they give that role to Kelly. I thought that made a lot of sense. More importantly, Dashiell, what is Dustin Diamond doing <laughs> during our chat with his mouth? I, I, I rewound this a few times. Let's see. And it seems to be like he's trying to get food out of his teeth, but mm. there is no food on our table. So um, your guess is as good as mine of what he was actually doing with his mouth. It's after I give him the noogie right there. Okay. And then he just like, you know, keeps chomping away like he's got some cut in his mouth or so. Hmm. 
Well, we noticed him kind of wiping some drool off his mouth a couple episodes coming into the Max. <laughs> Maybe there was like a snack table precariously close to the entrance of the Max, and he just like couldn't keep his, his hands out of it? I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, Slater gets some cat calls on his entrance. Uh, he must have had his fan club uh, that night in the audience. You're saying it's fake news. I, You're saying the cat calls are fake news. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't appreciate it, let me tell you. I uh, I remember that feeling, and it came back in a in a wave, and and um, I I don't like it, Dashiell, when when someone else gets the calls and I don't. Hey, look, you got a bat in the room right there next to you. We've established that, so just pick it up, swing at something, and you know, see if you don't feel better right after. <laughs> so Slater says he's voting for Jesse, and uh, you know, Zach asks, "What would happen if a woman ran?" the school or the country. And he'd say, well, it's less violent and color coordinated. At first I thought, oh, that's very progressive. And then I thought, nope, that's uh, pretty sexist. Yeah. It's like, it's still Slater's misogyny, but it's like, this is a, like last week he was saying like a woman needs to like be in the kitchen kind of thing. This is almost like you, like, ah, this is like a good version of sexism or something. Like it sounds nice, but yeah, it is in fact still not, not the best that that is like, what a woman would accomplish in office. And then we get into the hallway and uh, Slater enters yet to another cat call. Wow. <laughs> it seems like you're um, holding on to something, if I may, Mark Paul. It seems like you're, you're holding on to maybe some things, but <laughs> at least one thing. So who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll work through it together by the time we wrap 100 episodes of this podcast. And you get Screech just doing what he does, you know, as has been established. He just info dumps. Like, you cannot trust Screech with your plan, which Zach does often. Um, but yeah, he Slater gets all the info that Zach is just in this for the trip. Were you impressed with him lifting Screech against that locker? I mean, it looks good. He like, I was actually impressed with the directing to keep the bottom, just the lo- little, bit of, little bit of tuft of Slater's hair in the frame when you see Dustin lift, lift it up. Maybe that's why he got the cat calls. He was able to do that. I wasn't able to do that. You think that's why? You think they were like, yeah, lift up another guy. <laughs> Speaking of a guy who could lift a, 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 f- a few. Yeah. Um, we get Belding <laughs> in the locker room. Lift a few what? <laughs> a few beers? <laughs> yeah, Belding looking pretty doughy in his like little belly shirt. It's, it is so, I know why they did it for budget. I get it. It is so funny to picture an adult man working out in a, in a kid's lock. I mean, I guess it's actually not funny. It's pretty disturbing. <laughs> and good for Dennis Haskins. You know, I mean, he, the, the, the laugh is at his expense and, and it seems like he's pretty comfortable being that way and, and doing anything for a laugh. Um, so hats off to him. But that outfit, my God, that's it's, not even a, like, yeah. a, it's supposed to be a smaller shirt. Like it's maybe so it's his funny. original shirt. I don't know. But it looks like a cutoff. And then yeah. the boxing shorts <laughs> and the sock garters, like the whole thing, it, it, it makes zero sense. Yeah, his outfit is like very maxed out comedically. Like, like I know we talked about when Slater was dressed up like a wrestler in one of the fantasies. You were like, the outfit needs one less thing. Uh, they did like just the right amount of funny things for Belding's outfit. Almost kind of like a uh, like what Will Ferrell embodied of this. Like I'm very comfortable with my body as kind of a doughy man. Uh, you get that same kind of energy from Belding. And now we're back in the classroom, and uh, Zach is about to play his campaign ad. Uh, uh, just want to let you know, I believe that that's Don Barnhart who is the voiceover for my ad. And Don Barnhart is one of our uh, directors who directs Mm. the majority of the show. And we also get some pictures of you, Mark Paul, that uh, I would imagine are are real photos. Um, Watching this, I I was actually shocked that they use real photos uh, of of 
my my real baby photos. I I again don't remember these episodes, and watching them, I thought, well, that's that's interesting. That 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 that's me. One of my actual favorite things in movies and TV is when they show you a house of a family, and you can kind of like see the fake pictures the family had to take to like fill the house. Uh, I love that. I'm a big fan. So it was cool to just to see like, oh, let's use some some baby Mark Paul here. So speaking of baby Mark Paul, um, there's a photo. I think it's the third baby photo hmm. here. Uh, let's see if I can pause it right there. And uh, it's my mother holding my baby face. And you can notice my mother's hand is, uh, the skin tone is substantially darker than my skin tone because uh, we've talked about this in the past, but my mother's an Indonesian. And uh, people have, have always wondered, like, or not wondered, but they, they, they were not aware that I was uh, half Asian. And uh, if they had watched closely, they could have figured it out right here. Well, not that they would have figured, figured it, out, it out, but yeah, the, the smoking gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a clue. Yeah. There's a clue. Did you know that, by the way, Reed? That uh, your your role model, that Zach Morris, was uh, not the white guy that you thought he was. No, I I I, I did not know that, and I think you told me that in our. First, oh yeah, I was like, it was my opening. That. It was my opening right. card. It's it's on that business card next like, to I'm twenty. By the way, <laughs> by the way, I'm also half. <laughs> I'm also half not white. By the way. But yeah, that's the reason why I had to uh, always have my hair dyed, and I had uh, brunette hair, and. Um, but yeah, there's there's my my mother's hand uh, holding my cute little face. So Reed, I wanted to ask you about this ad specifically, um, just as someone who has been like in the arena of politics, uh, you know, for a substantial amount of time in, in a major major organization, uh, the White House. What did Zach do right here, and what would you maybe have done differently if this was your campaign ad for Zach? You know, the way I always think about ads, because I remember sitting in the test, the focus groups, and a lot of the strategy strategy meetings, especially in 2004. Um, I was young, but still was uh, invited to sit in some of the senior meetings. And I, it, it's like relationship counselors would say that, you know, a lot of times people hmm. don't remember what you say, only how you make them feel, right? And, um, and in, in political advertising, one of the most effective ads uh, of the of the 2000s was this ad that George W. Bush ran against John Kerry, where they, it just listed all 30 times that John Kerry had voted to cut military spending, and the wolves kept coming closer and closer. And there was this eerie music, and the wolves kept coming out of the woods, and more and more wolves, and then they kept coming closer. It was like a pack of wolves, and it was it was it was eerie. It would send a cold chill down your spine, and it was actually one of the most uh, it tested off the charts. And the point is uh, that that the substance. People don't usually remember any substance of political ads. They remember how it makes them feel. Um, and so I think oh, this ad, I really noticed, it really stood out to me in this whole episode that in politics, you kind of dumb the message down to the lowest common denominator. And then the other side, if, some, if one side does something that really dumbs, dumbs things down, the other side immediately starts commenting about how it's threatening democracy. And that's actually what Jesse does, I believe, in this, you know, which is, this is a threat to democracy. And I think both campaigns, in every presidential campaign, both campaigns start out talking about their policies. And then by the end of the election, they've realized voters aren't that sophisticated and the candidates are just trying to be likable and funny. And I think every can campaign devolves in that direction. And we get building, um, revealing, you know, by way of Slater's, uh trickery that the the trip is off and now is that kind of like a like the plot of the producers he has to like you know wreck his own boat well there is it not i don't know if this is something that's interesting for this discussion or not but there was actually quite a few reports about how 
the current president, um, wanted to run run for president uh, really more as a PR move. And and when he realized he actually was going to win the nomination, was kind of panicked. And I, that actually made me laugh watching this episode that, that this is not, um, you know, there, there's quite a few reports out there that, by credible sources that that, that, that happened in, in real life, you know, this, this, ele- this last election. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I've seen the pictures of Trump on election night, and he, he definitely did not look like a man who was like, happy about what was happening, which is confusing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the ultimate dog right. catches car moment, right? I call it dog, you know, dog catches car, where you think, hey, this is, this is fun campaign. And I've always said this, that uh, it's a completely different skill set to campaign uh, than it is to govern. And I think everybody who thinks they want to be a politician pictures themselves campaigning. No one pictures themselves sitting in a government with the Department of Transportation in a meeting with the Department of Transportation, right? Um, so governing is not fun, and it's a different skill set. And so I, I definitely think Trump loved the idea of winning, and I think he loved the idea of campaigning. Uh, but running a $20 trillion economy in two wars and 2.1 million government bureaucrats is probably not what he had on his mind. Yeah, also, if he lost, he would have, it would have been the best, I mean, truly the best thing for him. He gets to, like, he, he didn't, doesn't alienate all of his Hollywood friends. He gets to say the election was rigged for the rest of time. And like, you can like, kind of like do, yeah, it seems, you know, who knows? Could have been a very different, <laughs> very different four years. It's worth noting also that, that Zach's very hollow video uh, actually dissuades Kelly. Like the video makes up her mind by saying like, oh, I could never vote for someone who's just so shamelessly, you know, trying to get my vote. And it's Act Three, and uh, yeah. So Reed, Jesse's having a little strategy meeting here, where the the whole team is essentially saying, "You gotta do something because Zach has the nerds and the geeks and the jocks." Which again, very Ferris Bueller-y in the way of talking about high school cliques. But does this ever work? Like, like do do you ever have advisors in an election at the finish line saying what you need to do is completely change who you are? to get votes? Like, does that strategy, is there any precedent? So, so it's interesting. Um, I think the most, the, the, the election where something like this stands out the most, and I don't know, um, I'm not, I'm a registered independent. This is not a partisan analysis. This is just kind of a historic fact at this point, because I have a lot of friends who are involved in this, but John McCain was losing by three touchdowns, right? At one point he was losing by like 19 points or 20 points. And, um, there was a lot of strategizing going on, and that's uh, the the result of those strategy meetings. I call it a, I call it the double reverse hook and lateral hail mary, which was Sarah Palin. And so there are times, you know, they started having John McCain carry an economics book around to show he was getting tutored on the economy. I mean, it was it was very clumsy, but I do think there's times when desperation hits in, and and you know, you had in fact in the 2004 campaign, John Kerry put on an an orange base, baseball cap and camouflage and went hunting with a rifle and he was carrying it the wrong way and whatever. So th- there absolutely are times when, when candidates are, I think, poorly advised because remember, advisors all work, um, you, they're paid to talk about strategy and PR. And so a lot of times when you're meeting with your advisors, they make everything a strategy or PR problem. And so what I often say is that sometimes people think they have a perception problem when really they have a reality problem. Uh, and so... Uh, advisors tend to make everything. So so when you meet with your advisors, a lot of times they think you're being covered unfairly. We have a perception problem. When a lot of times 
maybe the voters are right. Maybe you have a reality problem, right? The voters just don't like what you're offering. And so I think that's a very interesting, I think that, that strategy meeting was very interesting because it very much parallels real life. Yeah, and it, it works. I mean, Jesse essentially becomes like a Malibu Barbie doll, like in a, in all pink with the overblown hair and, you know, Zach flips too. He's now he's like tough on school. <laughs> and like he's uh he's like the authoritarian candidate. Yeah. I mean, listen, we, we've all seen examples of this where people try to fundamentally candidates try to fundamentally change who they are. Uh, and again, that that's, um, a lot of times you've got the, the, the politician who's basically like a CPA who's never taken his tie off in his life. And then next thing you know, they're like, have their sleeves rolled up and they're playing kickball with people. And, you know, it's just so awkward, right? Um, so I, I think the, 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 the phrase that's spoken in, in politics often is be who you are, where you are. And, and, and when politicians try to get outside of who they are to try to move the needle in a demographic, it usually just ends up looking really clumsy. We're back at the classroom, and uh, this is right before the, um, uh, well, this is the poll update with uh, Screech walking in, and this is very much who I was back in this day. I don't know if this was uh, uh, the same for you guys, but these shoes that we open up on, Vision Streetwear, do you guys remember those? I'm familiar with Vision as like a, a like OG skateboarding company. Like Vision was like the, one of the first like streetwear brands to really take off. These shoes made me so happy in my youth. I, I, I remember wearing these and being so happy that I could show these off, uh, which is probably why they're up on the desk for you know all the world to see. But uh, I, I remember these shoes and, and I was a, a, a pseudo skater back in the day. And uh, the, these were life for me. These, like, I, I, I was a sneakerhead for these shoes. Yeah, Zach Morris, like a confirmed sneakerhead. Jordans and yeah, it's like early in the culture for that stuff for sure. I don't think I don't think Zach ever had Jordans though. Did he, he never not? had those Jordans? Remember we talked about no, he, he had those dirty Converse and those became you know like his thing. I'm thinking of Nike high tops though. Like there were definitely Nike high tops, not Jordans. Well, we'll have to see, but I, I see those as Converse. Those are Converse high tops. Well, I'll, we'll see if if he we'll had Nike on. high tops. Yeah. Sneaker watch, yeah. You definitely did have some cool shoes later on, for sure. I I, I would love a pair of those Vision Streetwears today because I'm telling you, those that, that was life for me back then. They had this like little pad on the side for when you ollied, hmm. you know, that it, it didn't like wear away your your uh, by your pinky toe. Smart. It had this like little pad right there. Yeah, yeah. it was it was awesome. It would last like two extra more days. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're in the hallway right before uh, everyone goes in to vote, and uh, I take a, a sip out of this non-functioning water fountain. I just want to point out my superb acting. Right. Uh, with also the, the the wiping of the mouth to confirm that I actually had some water, but check this out. Now, of course, that water fountain not hooked up to anything, but you do wipe the mouth. Yeah, it's very, look at that acting, Mark Paul. Great stuff. That's what you call acting, Dashiell. That's what, that's what you wouldn't understand. I, w- I would not even begin to understand that that is what you call acting. <laughs> You're correct in that, in that sentence. Uh, and Zach, so this is a, uh, he wages a disinformation campaign, which is, also, I would say very common in modern politics, but it's been around for a while. Uh, but it's like a false flag operation. He's like basically creating an attack on his own soil and, you know, kind of blaming the enemy. And uh, it doesn't go great for Zach. It, just like Kelly was swayed one way, all the negativity surrounding Zach sways her 
back to him. She feels bad for the candidate and votes for him. So she votes for me and we get the election results and the number is 342 for Jesse and 343 for Zach Morris. And he demands a recount. Which was not, which was not common vernacular at the time. So you were a part of the big, I mean, you were on the ground floor for the biggest contested election in U.S. history. I'm, I'm, you're probably smarter than me about it. If there's it another was, one, I, I don't know it because I'm very dumb. But that, like, like was a recount tradition? Like, recounts a, a, a word we all know now because of 2000, um, you know? Right. Well, so what happens, there's nothing that incentivizes people to get smart on something really fast, like billable hours. So the lawyers saw it coming, right? Um, and so I'm not joking. So what happened was, um, a lot of states have what's called an automatic trigger recount. So if it's le- the margin's less than 1%, uh, it triggers an automatic recount. Typically, though, that margin is in states that don't have enough electoral ma- uh, votes to matter. So like you may have a, you know, Wisconsin or some state that has like a 0.7 margin, but the, the, the electoral votes at stake don't sway the election. So the lawyers saw the Florida tie coming. Uh, CBS, the networks helped a lot because they called the election for Gore before the entire panel, panhandle was off work. So all of the Republican votes, which were military bases and churches, uh, were still at work in the panhandle. They called the election uh, because they forgot the panhandles. And the typical of network media forgot that the panhandle's in the central time zone. Um, so they took it back in the undecided column. It goes to a recount. There's a lot of misinformation, even really smart, sophisticated people I know in politics, and even people who know history really well, will casually say things at dinner to me all the time about the, the Florida recount that are just demonstrably false. So I think what I think is the most interesting thing about recounts is um, the, the election, a presidential election has to be over by December, I believe it's December 21st. So if a recount is not done by December 21st, the House of Representatives chooses the president. So a lot of people like to say the Supreme Court stopped the recount. Well, the Supreme Court stopped the recount uh, in 2000 in Florida because they were only recounting the four Democrat counties, which is unconstitutional. And to recount the entire state would have taken longer than the December 21st deadline, which is when the House of Representatives would have chosen the election. So there's a lot of like semantics. There's a lot of real deadlines uh, that in there that are not just semantics. Well, Jesse's not too pleased with, with this. Uh, she's shooting daggers at her once friend, Kelly. Good acting, by the way, from Elizabeth. That is a, I really believe she is pissed. If you've ever seen a, a pissed off person. Every vote counts, Dashiell. Yeah, right. That That is an interesting... So, like, again, in, in looking at this both as, like, a extended metaphor for larger democratic systems, um, but also, like, this is a kid's show. So, as a kid's show, I'm sure a lot of children were introduced to the concept of, like, elections and voting through this episode, or at least more familiarized. And there is, like, an actual lesson here that every single vote counts. And it, it introduced the... It introduced the concept of a swing vote, right? Which was also before the Florida recount was not a, that was not a thing, right? So it didn't use the term, but the, the, the two things, one, every vote counts. And two, Kelly was the swing vote and she was a, a young female. She was a certain demographic, a young, a certain psychographic, right? Someone who's empathetic to both sides and kind of undecided and not a political activist. And that person who's not a political uh, not a political junkie, oftentimes is the swing vote. So it was a pretty sophisticated thing to introduce on the kids' show. And, you know, the trip's still on to D.C., and Zach pops on into Jesse's room where her, her creepy little doll that we've been watching all season is wearing a hat. I thought that was a fun choice. Uh, whoever, was on, whoever was on set and was like, put the doll in the campaign hat, 
great job. Not sarcastically. That's that's good thinking. Um, and yeah, and Zach comes in and they they have like a very tender moment here um, to end the episode. And he resigns. And is this the first time that we see our hero Zach Morris? And yes, I said hmm. hero, uh, referring to to Zach Morris, uh, feeling remorse. No, he's. Like, God, I'd have to go back. I mean, I think he's, even when last week in Mamas and the Papas, he's in Belding's office being like, G- you know, golly gee whiz, we, I was sure a jerk. Like, he regularly shows remorse um, for his actions just bizarrely after, like, every bit of damage has been done is when it when it starts to <laughs> click with him that, like, maybe I could have done things a little differently. But, you know, who amongst us hasn't been in that position? Wishing we scorched a little less earth. I actually appreciated the fact that even at that time, uh, that there was a, they highlighted like platonic friendship. Well, I think they're also still keeping this in play that it could be a Zach and Jesse thing. Like, I think there was a little bit of like juggling in the writer's room of like, ooh, like who's, you know, how's it all going to shake out? Um, But it is nice. Yeah. Platonic friendship and like the very tender um, friends forever theme as established by Bennett Tramer in the first episode he wrote. And now again in this, um, it just becomes like a real hallmark of the show. This like warm, you know, this wa- this warm tone. Um, we see a lot of uplifting ends, you know, high fives, freeze frames. This was just like a nice tender moment uh, between childhood friends. Before we end this uh, show, I, I, I thought something that was interesting in this particular scene was uh, Zach saying, I, I want you to be president and go to Washington. That city needs someone honest. At the time, George uh, H. Bush was running. Um, it seems that no matter who's running, we we always think someone is dishonest running this country. Wait, at the time, George Bush Sr., wasn't he in? He was in office. He was. This was 89. Correct. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying, it doesn't matter who- Running, oh, you mean like running for- got No, it. it doesn't matter who's who's in office. We always think of them as being dishonest. Yeah, Reed, what's up with that? Why why could you go back 100 years and make that joke about Washington? Like, does the city just attract a certain person? <laughs> so, so, so that's a great point and obviously a complex one, but I, I would say uh, it's a- a few things. One is that in DC, there's this saying often that everyone who knows doesn't talk and everyone who's talking doesn't know, right? There's this, what do people need to know? What do people want to know versus what do people need to know? So anytime you have a bunch of people um, making decisions and deciding what you as the public need to know on a need to know basis, whether it's about national security or whatever else, that, that creates a certain uh, that just bakes in a certain amount of distrust, right, to the system. Is that you got all these people sitting behind closed doors deciding, hey, you sh- you don't really need to know what's going on in terms of all of our kind of secret military operations, whatever. So I think that's always been there, right? Like the Kennedys were famous from going out saying President Kennedy had a cold today, and they're like, but wait a minute, we just saw the generals all coming in. They're like, President Kennedy had a cold today, right? So there's always been this need to know versus want to know distrust, and I think that's some that some of that's there. The second thing is. Um, when you feel like people that are running for office aren't the most honest, um, what it takes to become president is brutal. Um, so I think in the, if a, if a, if someone, if a candidate makes it through the gauntlet and they're not a compulsive liar, it's usually because they have an extraordinary amount of message discipline and even message discipline, which is just repeating the same three things every day is a form of lying by omission. Right. So, so I think in general, it's very difficult to make it to the finish line without being extremely conveniently selective with facts. Yeah, even the fact I would imagine that you are the person, the one person in the country best suited for this job is its own sense of like the craziest lie anyone can tell themselves. Like 
there's just no way anyone can know they're the guy or woman to do this. Uh, and yet there's people every four years who or you know, less than that, who line up for the job. And uh, yeah, it's certainly a specific personality type. And you got to imagine some folks want to do good. And, but here we are. <laughs> well, we think about how we think about the absurdity, like they're trying to make it look absurd at first that Zach Morris is running for president, class president. Right. But if you think about it uh, with Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, even Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, a lot of people recently who didn't uh, win the nomination, um, they're running at 39, 40 years old. If they walked into Apple or Amazon or Walmart or like a Fortune 5 company and said, hey, I'd like to be the CEO, they would get laughed out of the room, right? They'd be like, this is a trillion dollar company. But yet, because the public is not, you know, the, basically someone, in order to run for president at 39 or 40, you had to have decided to run for president at 36. So that means you woke up and said, $22 trillion economy, three wars, Congress, you know, immigration, artificial intelligence, automation, you know, societal restructuring economically, currency. I think I should run the country. And that takes a certain amount of delusion. Yeah, right? yeah. it sounds like a bad job. I mean, I'm not going to lie. As far as jobs go, there's a whole lot of other ones I would, I would personally rather have. So, so yeah. Uh, well, that seems like a good segue to maybe remind people that there is an actual election happening in this country and Go on out and vote if you haven't done that already. This is a, maybe a good message to, to end on. Uh, unless, Reed, you want to tell us whether or not the government will ever let us know about aliens, in which case, great platform, <laughs> uh, a Zach to the Future exclusive. Uh, but otherwise, you know, just get out there and vote, folks. <laughs> uh, we do have homework for next week. Uh, this podcast is just far, far from over. It is an episode called The Zach Tapes. Uh, Mark Paul, any thoughts on what The Zach Tapes might be about? I have zero uh, take on what what it could possibly be. Reed, do you have any? Uh, uh, Reed probably knows. Do you know what the Zach tapes are? He, was, about? he has a dog named Zach Morris. <laughs> I I think that's one of the most interesting parts of this is 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 uh, catching Mark Paul up on on things about Zach Morris. <laughs> I mean, it can it could it couldn't be like a you know when when you think of people having tapes, right? You know, you think of like the Paris Hilton. The, it's the not Kim one of those. No, you uh, no, you're not. It's not one of no, those. Son. That would have been. Way ahead of its time uh, for for the culture, way, way more than a pair of cool sneakers on a desk. Um, no, it's a, it's a it's an iconic episode. I look forward to you watching it. Iconic. It actually, yeah, really? I, would, I would say it's one of the more iconic, one of the more iconic episodes, uh, just in the nature of the huh. plot. And um, I don't want to say too much, but it's it's a good one. We got we got a real not to say this wasn't a good one, but we got another good one next week. I really like this uh, this past episode, the election. I thought it was like, again. We said it was timely. I really enjoyed watching. I enjoyed watching the characters. So thankful that you came and joined us uh, on our show, Reed. Yeah, thank you, Reed. Would love to have you on the show again when we're not talking politics and and we can kind of just have. Not that we didn't have fun, but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want you to feel like we had you on just because you're our our political analyst. I appreciate you guys having me on. If you'd have told my 14 year old self uh, that I was going to be going on uh, a podcast to talk about uh, Zach Morris as a former White House spokesman, I'm not sure I would have. <laughs> yeah, which part of that would have been the most confusing? Probably, probably the word podcast. I, I was going to say, I would say, what's a podcast? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks again. Thank you, Reed. Thank you, Mark Paul and the listener. And we'll see you next week. Zach to the Future is a production of Cadence 13. It's executive produced by Mark Paul Gosler, myself, and Chris Corcoran. Production and direction led by Terrence Malangone. Editing and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz. Engineering and production coordination by Sean Cherry. Artwork by Kurt Courtney with illustrations by Jeff McCarthy. Marketing is led by Josephina Francis with PR by Hilary Shue. Thanks to the whole team at Cadence 13 and to you for listening. 